Welcome to Cardigan and Collar. I'm Maurice Lee, pastor of Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Abington, Pennsylvania. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, David Louie, professor of theology at the North American Lutheran Seminary, centered in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Today we're continuing, or I suppose more accurately, I should say we're launching our series on the topic of catechesis. And we're doing that with the help of our mutual friend and colleague, the Reverend Dr. Joel Scandrett. Dr. Scandrett is Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, the host institution of the North American Lutheran Seminary. Uh, David, does that mean that you and he basically run into each other all the time? That's true. Yeah, Joel's office is just down the corner from mine. So um, we, we bump into each other on campus and he's a wonderful colleague. Great. Now, among the many important academic and ecclesial projects in which uh, Dr. Scandret has been involved, for example, many of us will recognize him from his association with the excellent Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series, uh, or because of his familiarity with the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance. But especially relevant to our discussion today is the fact that Dr. Scandret served as the executive editor for the new catechism, the new teaching tool, recently approved for use by the Anglican Church in North America, a catechism entitled To Be a Christian and published by Crossway in 2020. So he's well-placed and he's well-informed as an expert guide for our thinking about catechesis in the contemporary church. Joel, thanks for joining us today and welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I think David and I will be peppering you with questions, but uh, let me start by saying that while we fully plan to get to, you know, key issues like the definition and the nature of catechesis, the why and the how, uh, I'd love for our listeners to get to know you, Joel, just a little bit better. You know what? This is hard for me to believe, but I realized today that I first met you exactly 40 years ago at Wheaton College. <laughs> it a is hard to scary. believe. It is hard to believe. <laughs> And David, you're, you and Joel uh, have uh, connections, of course, uh, at, the, at the seminary. Yeah, we do. Joel and I, we met, I'm trying to think the first time we met, it would have been, I suppose, about 10 years ago. Um, it's a little bit funny because Joel, um, Joel taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School prior to my teaching there 10 years ago. And little did I know, as we were sort of ships passing, just meeting each other at that time, that uh, about a decade later, I'd be following him to another Trinity, Trinity School for Ministry, which is the host institution um, of the NALS. So, yeah, I, I don't know. We've had an interesting journey. It's not quite 40 years, but, uh, but 10 years of history, at least. That's great. I think we met in either the fall of 2011 or 2012 briefly in one of the hallways there, David. <laughs> that sounds and right. I kept uh, David's office chair warm for him because he essentially replaced this spot I was holding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So it is a small world. Your profiles are like these huge clouds on the horizon of, of theological education. Uh, it would be great to get to get a whole life story, but um, let me just cut to the chase, Joel, and ask, what's the deal with you and catechesis? Like, why is it such an interest of yours? I was thinking about that um, in advance. You know, it's really just an extension of my 
call to be a teacher of the church, which I've been following for something like 30 years now, um, while catechesis is something that's typically thought of as something happening in the context of the parish at a fairly popular level, really classic theological education is essentially catechesis at a more, we could say, a higher or more academic level. Um, but we're essentially dealing with the same body of teaching that we would mm. want all Christians to be familiar with to one degree or another. And so um, it, it uh, seems like something I just naturally kind of slid into when I was asked to become involved in some things. And, um, and I've grown in my love for it, and it, it's a natural extension of my love for the Lord and my love for His church. Joel, do you that I, it's interesting to hear you talk about um, the enterprise of theology as a kind of extension of catechesis. I mean, we on the the podcast, a big theme of ours is thinking about uh, the intersection between theology and pastoral ministry. Do you think that thinking under the umbrella of catechesis might be a way to sort of heal that split that sometimes exists between theology and the church to sort of see um, both sides of that? Um, institutional divide that sometimes exists as fundamentally oriented to the task of catechesis in some way? Absolutely. Um, in one sense, what we're hoping to achieve in catechesis is connecting the life of faith with the life of prayer and the life of, um, we could say, uh, living a life dedicated to Jesus Christ. Um, and so while we don't use the scary T word, theology, when we're doing a catechesis, we're really talking about uh, connecting the principal and essential features of our faith, not just what we believe, but how we pray, how we live in a, in a deep and direct way with uh, the lived lives of Christian believers in the church. Um, so um, part of the tragedy of our contemporary context is that those natural connections have kind of been lost in certain ways. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we go further in this conversation. But mm. yeah. That's, that's really interesting to me. I'm trying to imagine, you said before that uh, there's the, there, you could think of both the academic side and the churchly side of, of uh, things, theology as catechesis in some sense. So I'm trying to myself in the position of someone in doing doing academic theology you know you've got this uh you've got this degree and you've got uh, a position and you've got responsibilities classes and students and so forth now in terms of catechesis uh, is that is that something that that you the teacher are also uh, is it are, are you being catechized in some sense or is it basically you're thinking the theology that you're doing and the and thinking about and and researching that's helping you to to sort of think about how uh, how to do it from the position of the teacher in the church. Yeah, I think I think uh, when one catechizes, one is also uh, growing in one's under, understanding of these things. I'm sure David and you could both attest to how, as we teach these things year in year out, they kind of come to saturate our thinking. One of the things I, I say repeatedly in my catechesis courses is that uh, right belief, what we sometimes call orthodoxy, 
is never just about the right set of propositions we might hold in view. It's, it's a conversion of our mind. It's a conversion of our mind so that we might think according to the mind of Christ. Um, so it's never just about uh, content. It's always about formation, uh, formation of our minds, our wills, our behavior, all of those dimensions. Um, mm. And that's something that is ongoing in the Christian life. Catechesis establishes a foundation, but there is always an onward and upward dynamic uh, in the Christian life that is more deeply integrating these truths into the substance of our lives uh, and, and in an expansive way that spreads out, as it were, into the arenas of our lives in a transformative way. So mm. good catechesis is always more than information. It's about transformation. Mm -hmm. uh, another mm -hmm. one of my uh, familiar sayings in my catechesis classes. Do you have a typical... I mean, for lack of a better term, like a typical elevator speech you give um, <laughs> to the person that you're trying to convince the, of the need for catechesis. I mean, in other words, you know, if you had to answer the question, you know, why catechesis and why is it such an urgent enterprise, not just intrinsically, but, but especially at this moment um, in the church's history, I have a feeling you've got a pretty good elevator speech. So I, could, you, could you hit us with it? Yeah, I haven't refined my elevator speech, uh, so <laughs> forgive me if I if I stumble. But um, catechesis is instruction in the essentials of the Christian faith, in terms of what we believe and how we pray and how we live. Um, and it's it takes place in the context of a worshiping and missional community. And so catechesis is both about uh, what we believe, how we perceive the world and ourselves and God in the world, and how we live, how, how those, those beliefs inform the rest of our lives. Um, I could say more, but that's, that's uh, it in a nutshell. And could you say a little bit about, I mean, I think the reason why it's so important is perhaps just already kind of expressed in your definition, but um, you know, what... Do you, is there, are there particular reasons why you think this enterprise is especially important now that the church take this more seriously than perhaps it has in the past? Yes, and I think we see it all around us. If you're familiar with the New City Catechism published by Crossway, uh, we see, at least from where we're sitting, a resurgence of catechesis really across the board in many churches um, but uh, there are a couple answers to the question. One is, in a more general sense, whenever the, the church, we might say whenever Christendom has been ascendant, the perceived need for catechesis has kind of tailed off. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because when you have an established social structure with various structures like education or common life that are informed by broadly Christian values, we could say a recognizably Christian society, then those structures have a way of reinforcing a sense of what it means to be a Christian, reinforcing a Christian identity. And so when Christendom, as it were, is established in a given society, oftentimes the, the perceived need for catechesis kind of fades. You see this after the, est the establishment of the church, after the Edict of Milan by uh, the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. 
Um, there's this great flourishing of catechesis prior to that point, and some of that continues on. But then by the 6th and 7th centuries, you see it really tailing off. When do we see it emergent again? When the church once again is in crisis in the Reformation, essentially. But we see it tailing off again in the 17th and 18th centuries. And now here we find ourselves here at the beginning of the 21st century with a, a growing awareness that the church once again is under threat or in crisis. And so there's a, there's a, a recognition of a need to reclaim catechesis. That's a general answer. The more particular answer has to do with what we've come through in modernity with this uh, propensity to have a more rational, rational and kind of rationalistic approach to faith, which is fairly cognitive, but not very well integrated with the larger uh, Christian life. And so uh, we'll hear people talk about having a Christian worldview, and of course, a Christian worldview is very important. But a worldview by itself is not enough. Uh, a set of beliefs is not enough. We need a way of life. We need a recognizably distinctive way of life that conforms to a, a goal or a purpose. And that, of course, we believe is the, the man, Jesus Christ. Right? <laughs> um, and so, um, so there's been a sense in which there's been a kind of a disintegration of an understanding of the self under the impress of modernity that we are seeking to recover. Mm. Um, part of that is because the kind of uh, relying upon those plausibility structures of Western society has allowed us to get pretty lazy. Mm. And, and we just can't afford to be lazy anymore. Mm. Our kids are leaving the church. Uh, we see the decline of the church. And uh, yeah, it's an urgent matter. I hope that's a... Well, it's really interesting that you talk about catechesis or the need for catechesis as transcending simply kind of, you know, intellect, the intellectual or the cognitive dimension. And I wonder if uh, that is, I don't want to say problematic, but if there's any, uh, if there's any mismatch between that, the character of catechesis, as you've talked about it, and the, you know, sort of the traditional form, we've got these texts. Right. Question and answer. Right. Sometimes they're uh, sometimes they're really small, but sometimes they're really big uh, right. books. Um, is there is that the is that the way? Is that yeah. still the way to do catechesis? Well, it's a great question. We look in the the main class I teach at the ancient practice of catechesis and the reformational practice of catechesis, and they look quite different. Mm. Um, in the patristic period, you see a much more interrogative and interactive and more narratival approach to catechesis that talks more about the rule of faith, the kind of big pieces of what we believe and how our life is caught up into the story of God and how that locates people in a particular identity and a community in, in living out their lives in Christ. Uh, so Augustine's principal way of catechizing, for example, is essentially through his sermons. Mm. Um, whereas with Luther and uh, Calvin and the Reformation, we see the influence of the scholastic tradition with this question and answer paradigm. And um, so we have in that context what I call something more like a grammar, a grammar of faith. And that's what we mainly see with the catechisms of the Reformation. 
it's more, and, and typically they're designed because, of course, in this context, everyone's a baptized Christian, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's typically designed for a, a, a young person, um, maybe an adolescent. We typically think of this uh, in terms of confirmation, at least in the Anglican tradition. Most of what we do in terms of catechesis historically for the last couple hundred years has been in the context of confirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, but with uh, uh, some of the Puritans and other reformational figures, even younger children were, were required to memorize a catechism. So they were designed to be memorable, a question that was uh, then easily answered by a memorized response, oftentimes rote memory. But the idea there is these core ideas become established within the mind of the young person. And then as they grow over time, they, they, they're fleshed out from a kind of a skeletal grasp of the faith into something much more substantive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's fair to think of, especially the Reformation Catechism, those grammars. But of course, we know that in classical education, you don't stop with grammar. <laughs> you go on to logic and rhetoric, right? How, how might one of our catechumens, someone being catechized, be able as an adult to speak back to us the mm. things they've believed and give a larger explanation? Uh, if all they know is the road answer, but they have no means of making sense of it, mm-hmm. then I'd say we failed in our catechesis, right? Right. right. Uh, you might be able to recite the smaller catechism, for example, in your tradition, but but can you explain it? Mm-hmm. And of course, the goal for the adult believer would be able to at least, in some way, be able to stitch things together um, in a in a larger sense that would make it clear that that person has arrived at a more mature level of faith and understanding. Mm. So that's uh, that's so. The uh, in answer to your question, then <laughs> uh, I I think. Those tools are all fine, but I do think um, one of the dangers of the rote memorization and think in a kind of a minimalist approach to being kind of a minimalist Christian, um, there's a great book by Andrew Walker and, and um, uh, what's his first name, um, Robin Perry called Deep Church Rising, mm. in which they talk about, and I use it in my catechesis classes, they talk about the problem of minimalist Christian. Christianity. And I think we, we can have that danger. And so the question then is, how might we think about how catechesis is more of a formational enterprise? Um, and, right. and so connecting, for example, catechesis classes with maybe mission trips or service projects or, or those sorts of things for kids. That's one example. Mm. There are many examples. Uh, what I say repeatedly again is, is a catechism is only as good as the catechist who's teaching it. Right? <laughs> and so it's never just about the document. It's also about the learn, the, the living or dynamic, hmm. um, event of catechesis. What's happening in those courses? What's the relationship between the catechist and the student? And is it something that's, that's being fleshed out in concrete? Uh, way implementable ways, uh, mm. if you follow me. It's I'm so interested by the imagery. I think you use the language of being that through catechesis, especially in the early church, um, it's a matter of locating the self um, within a story or locating the self within a space um, within the people of God and so forth. And it, it's it occurs to me that. Um, 
there's perhaps a helpful metaphor or analogy here um, between catechesis and just like the way we might think about processes of acculturation to a, you know, to a, uh, to a different um, society or a different cultural environment that in a sense, what you have perhaps in the Reformation era catechisms is you have a grammar. That's again, another useful metaphor. We're learning to speak um, through the, you know, the, 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 these linguistic signs that are sort of participate in this larger culture. But if we, if we do that in a way that forgets the larger narrative, the larger story, if, if our folks aren't embedded within that sense of story, then it almost becomes like a language without a place or, hmm. I mean, so yeah. do you think that that metaphor works? <laughs> is that a, is that a useful way of kind of maybe thinking about the different layers of catechesis as you've mapped it out? I was just, I found myself thinking about that as you were responding. Yeah. There. Um, the classic structure of catechesis always has three, three or four components. One is always the creed, typically the Apostles' Creed. One is the Lord's Prayer, and one is the Ten Commandments. And you'll see that as a shared structure in most catechisms. And then you, all, almost always there's something either on the sacraments or the life of the church, something to that effect. But I, we started, and this varies with, with Luther. You have, I believe, the Decalogue first, as I recall. Mm -hmm. um, and there are various reasons why these pieces are placed as they are um, from tradition to tr tradition. But historically, what was known as the rule of faith, which is the basis for the creeds that we hold, is the starting point because that is the context in which you identify who God is what the great story of God is and what the church is in relation to that story. And, and so I do think there's, um, I, I hope I'm answering your question, David. I do think that um, it's essential for the contemporary Christian, as it has always been, but again now, that however we do it, it's done in a way that allows for that that story, that narrative of the world and us in the world to be a kind of a foundational component. Right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of the reason it grabbed me is, um, you know, Stanley Hauerwas, and I think he's drawing on other writers like um, Alistair McIntyre and so forth, but, you know, right. he talks about how um, modernity is this condition of not having a story. Right. You know, um, and, and certainly we hear a lot about um, how, you know, folks within our, our, our sort of late modern context, for lack of a better term, feel a sense of detachment, um, alienation. And um, I feel like there's something there that's significant for how we think about catechesis. Because yeah. if, if we approach catechesis as um, answers to questions that no one's asking anymore, it can start, we can feel alienated from that undertaking. Like, well, you memorize these things and once you've sort of passed the test, then you're good to go. You can be confirmed or whatever. Right. If you frame catechesis instead as a way of like receiving a, an identity constituting story to which you belong. Right. That, that seems like it, would land differently that we would hear the word catechesis, not as sort of like this, I, I don't know, foreign protocol that we have to go through like some almost like graduation for church, you know, and, and more as something that could potentially resonate um, with folks. I mean, cause I think yeah. there's a sense that people feel a need for, um, 
for a story, you know, for a story right. th- to which they can, within which they can locate themselves. Yeah. Um, lots of thoughts. Um, catechesis has always been connected to initiation and membership in the church. That's his, its historic origin. And even in the practice of confirmation, you're confirming the baptismal vows made on your behalf by your by the community, specifically your parents, but not just your parents, right? in the context of the worshiping community. So it really is, whether for the adult new believer or, or those, we, we sometimes use the metaphor of either from the front porch or the font when, uh, in our circles in the ACNA. So someone who's, who's a new believer or someone who's raised from the font, someone who's baptized. In either case, catechesis is that process of helping them to claim their identity as a member of the body of Christ. You could say claim their baptism. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so to know that we are the baptized, as I think Jensen, Robert Jensen, uh, as I recall, uh, says. Indeed. Or, yeah, that who are we? We are the baptized, right? Uh, and so catechesis, when done well, when done as it should be done, is always going to be a kind of a process of induction. So we, we could think on the one hand, especially since most, most of our uh, kids are, were baptized as infants, a way of welcoming them to, into full membership, not that they weren't already full members, right? We, we grant that by virtue of their baptism, but really welcoming, in, welcoming them in to take their place with us in the company of the saints. And, uh, and so whether it's conversion or whether it's uh, confirmation, I think the principle remains the same. Mm. Um, and, and so this is why one other thought, which I do think is really important, and, and that is that catechesis really always takes place within the context of the worshiping church. Um, and, and so I, there need to be, we need to be intentional about reinforcing what we're learning and seeing how it's integrated with with the rest of, of our faith. So um, we talk in my context about liturgical catechesis quite a bit. How does the sermon, how does the liturgical year, how do the various seasons and holidays we recognize, all of which are predicated on the life of Christ, how do they form a kind of a superstructure that supports and reinforces this identity we want everyone to grow into mm. right mm. and so it's never it's there's always a kind of a context in which catechesis takes place and so it behooves us to think carefully about how well is the context of our worshiping community upholding and reinforcing uh what we're seeking to achieve through catechesis if that if that makes sense mm. that's another level of kind of growing into that identity that's what i'm trying to get at david Thank you. This talk of uh, enculturation or, or sort of becoming familiar with, uh, uh, with a world, um, the, becoming familiar with what it means to, to use the title of the ACNA Catechism to be a Christian, I think it brings up the question, uh, why do... Why would if that if that's the purpose, then why do we need old texts, um, old structures, classic 
approaches uh, instead of and instead of using new language or um, or not. Yeah, you know, or not. Uh, you you mentioned somewhere in one of the interviews, uh, in one of your interviews about the about the cate- um, about the catechism, the Anglican Anglican catechism, Joel, you point out that the New City Catechism it sort of abandons the um, the the Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed kind of structure in favor of uh, something that's sort of um, kind of vaguely lo- like a sort of systematic theology, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, is that, uh, is, is there something important, do you think, about using the old yes. ways? Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about, but was certainly in view both for the fathers and for the reformers, was that these core areas of catechesis are all fundamentally mm-hmm. biblical. <clears throat> They're all rooted in both the content and structure of, of Scripture itself. And so there is a sense in which you read through Heidelberg Catechism, you read through Luther, you'll see constant allusions to the biblical text. And, and there's this kind of hyperlinking between <laughs> the catechism and the biblical text that's always going on. That's true of the creed as well. Um, so that there's, there's a way in which it reinforces the ground of Holy Scripture as, as it were, the kind of um, terrain in which mm. our minds and hearts mm. dwell, right, spiritually right. speaking. Um, and catechesis is kind of a distillation of core teaching of Scripture. Now, it's not the New City Press. I mean, sorry, I'm thinking of something else. <laughs> the New City Catechism, I'm thinking of Augustinian studies right now, but New City Catechism um, doesn't, uh, doesn't also do that. I think they do have biblical references and that sort of thing. But, but that's the historic idea. But there's another piece here, and that is, especially, for example, the creed or even the way in which the Reformational catechisms um, are developed. Um, uh, there is a memory of the church that's kind of enshrined in these documents. Uh, certainly, the Nicene and Apostles' Creed. These are ecumenical statements. They're statements shared by believers all around the world throughout all time. Through, throughout all time, um, and so there's 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 this profound sense of the catholicity of the Christian faith that they share. Um, and of course, the common language of Scripture is a part of that. But I think also, um, and and you know, uh, we don't have much choice but to choose a kind of an ecclesial identity in this <laughs> day and age. We can't go back to pre twelfth century to when there was no, there was only one church, right? And so I do think it makes sense for us to think, well, you know, what Lutherans believe about some things isn't quite the same as what Anglicans believe and how Lutherans have formed their way of, of, of faith and life as a community has certain distinctives. And those are beautiful gifts to the rest of the ecumenical church. Um, and, and so it's good that we know th- these things. There's a history to that, that particular part of this larger story. We could, I suppose, try to achieve some kind of a generic Christian identity, but the fact is no such thing exists, right? That's not the way human beings work. And so 
I wouldn't want to see us just jettison, for example, the Reformational catechisms. I think that would be a mistake um, uh, because we are, we do inhabit particular traditions in particular churches in particular places. Um, now, having said that, I do think if you had the development of a church of a church in a particular part of the world where the gospel is relatively new, there might be ways in which a catechism might be designed that would be more reflective of of that particular mm -hmm. context in some ways. I, I don't want to second guess what those mm -hmm. might be. And I also think we might think about building upon these catechetical traditions we already have, maybe in supplementary mm -hmm. ways. Um, so some of the issues bubbling up now, for example, that have to do with gender identity and uh, and sexuality in the human body, we don't see much attention being given to those in in tr some of the traditional catechisms. Might it make sense to develop some supplemental tools that would help to give instruction, that mm -hmm. sort of thing? Um, that's the that's best answer really I have right now. When you thought, when you think. I, I'm thinking about the way, for example, that Carl Truman says that our crisis, um, our ecclesial and theological crisis these days is a crisis of, of the doctrine of human nature. And, and, uh, and right. is, that, uh, is that something? I mean, I could imagine saying, okay, well, then we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed and we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to draw... Uh, we're going to emphasize kind of the the anthropological, the the uh, the assumptions and the kind of the the substructure of the doctrine of human nature that 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 uh, that supports those um, those things. But I could, as you say, maybe maybe also uh, we uh, we should think about um, building on that and supplementing those with with some more um, so, some some resources or. Or discussions that are more specific to the to the needs of our time. Yeah, I think there are ways you can, even if you're using a traditional catechism, uh, a particular church like the NALC might want to develop uh, some additional supplementary, right? You know, questions and answers, and at the right place within the larger structure, kind of insert some additional teaching in that area, that might be one mm. way to do it. Uh, so Joel, we, in the, in the podcast, we were planning to finish each season with at least one episode and usually at least one or two, um, you know, featuring practitioners in the church, pastors who can sort of help us actually bring um, the conversations that we've been having, which hopefully have, you know, very much been um, oriented to the life of the church from the start to finish, but kind of help us connect the conversations to day in, day out, practical uh, ministry. So, but I want, I wanted to ask you sort of in that direction, what do you think it looks like for a church, um, a pastor concretely to approach um, their sense of ministerial calling um, uh in a way that prioritizes the task of catechesis. I mean, what mm. kind of transformation to a church culture happens when catechesis is moved right. from the back of the stove, you know, to the front of the stove, <laughs> as it were, what, what does that, right. what does that look like? Do you think? Yeah. Well, we've wrestled with this very question. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with the NALC, but it, with the, in the ACNA, we have a lot of uh, church planting happening mm. right now. 
what we've noticed is that it's much easier for a new church plant to kind of build catechesis into the culture of that church from the ground up than it is for a larger established church with lots of programs to try to integrate it in a comprehensive way. So it does depend on kind of the size and character of the particular parish you're thinking about. Um, um, with larger churches that have a more established programs of various kinds, then I think you look for opportunities that are natural, that are organic. So confirmation, for example, is a natural place for catechesis to be kind of made more robust. And I don't know how confirmation works in some contexts, but I know in the Anglican tradition, that, uh, and part of the problem was there wasn't a lot of good catechesis happening uh, for the last hundred years or so in Anglican circles in this country. Um, so uh, people are used to pretty thin, minimal kind of licking a promise approach to confirmation. Uh, by contrast, we're seeing um, now some churches significantly extending their confirmation courses to sometimes up to two years of, of ongoing uh, confirmation, and that might include some missional service, um, some some projects that have to do with, with uh, service in the church or mission trips, um, and that sort of thing. So there's there's a sense in which the catech catechesis is taken outside the mm -hmm. classroom. Uh, uh, others less extensive, but nonetheless, there's a recognition of a need for something more fully orbed happening with our young people. Um, that's, that's one thing to think about. We also, uh, with children and family ministry, this is a natural place for, to, to do catechesis with younger, uh, younger kids. One thing we're, we're trying to leverage is family catechesis. So how can we train parents, uh, to lead family devotions in simple ways that will, um, also include a catechetical element? Uh, uh, and the, of course, the trick here is that if we can get parents to do that, then if, then they will also be better catechized as Christians as well. So it's kind of a mm -hmm. two for one. So these are the sort of strategic mm -hmm. approaches I think we have to take. Um, um, there's kind of a wine and wineskins problem <laughs> there, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I think it, it does require that a pastor and the leadership of a parish do are committed and recognize the need for it. And if if the will isn't there, it's you know it might be tough. Um, in our in our circles where we have uh, bishops, um, if the diocesan bishop gets behind the idea of catechesis and says, "Okay, pastors, we're going to catechize our people," that's always very helpful. So the, the higher up the, the food chain, uh, as it were, that we go, um, the better in terms of uh, getting things mm. going. But that, that's the best answer I have at this point. You've said several times in, in our discussion today and in other places, uh, you've, you've drawn attention to, the, um, to liturgical catechesis. Uh, is there some way uh, of extending right. what you've been saying about sort of a, a culture, a culture of catechesis in our churches to include that. Yeah. 
Well, certainly good, um, good preaching that does also reference mm. these things either directly or indirectly is always handy. I, I use the metaphor of hyperlinking. Yeah. I think I think we can do that um, with with preaching and the catechism. Some I've heard of some uh, folks preaching through different portions of the catechism at different times right. of the year, which is interesting. Um, the other, the other possibility is to take advantage of seasons of the year. So oftentimes churches will have a Lenten or an Advent devotional book of some kind. Uh, I don't know how, how it's done in your circles, mm -hmm. but very commonly in our in Anglican circles, we'll have a Lenten or Advent devotional. That's a great mm -hmm. opportunity to include some maybe some a daily question from a, a catechism that sort of thing and maybe a, a brief exposition of the answer to the question as a part of that devotional so there are oftentimes little hooks fairly simple ways of integrating uh things uh across kind of as it were across the surface hmm. of what's happening mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. the church uh, if that have makes you sense. have you seen any experiments or know of, of traditions that try to incorporate some of this stuff into uh, daily prayer offices or Yes, absolutely. Uh, sorry, um, I should have thought of that as well. Uh, yeah, we've, uh, in fact, uh, in our um, in our uh, denomination, uh, a recent tool came out, which was uh, I'm trying to. I think it was the it was just the the daily office, um, and it's a digital resource for us morning and evening prayer. That what that's what I mean right. by the daily office. And so um, I think with morning or or on any given day, there is also one of the questions from our catechism that's included. Now we happen to have a catechism that's just about 365 questions <laughs> and answers. So that does come in handy. What a coincidence. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, maybe, yeah. But it, uh, it actually was not intended initially. That just kind of grew to that size somehow in the providence of God. Um, but but we, we have, have seen some people develop things uh, here and there along those lines. Yeah, I love so, that idea. Cer mm. Yeah, certainly can be done. David, anything burning in your heart that you need to get in before we... Well, I mean, just just one concluding thought as I'm taking all this in. It It's interesting to me that when we talk about catechesis and just how much is involved in the undertaking, it strikes me that it presupposes a certain understanding of the human person and what kinds of beings we mm. must be to require such an incredibly thorough and robust reorientation to reality. Um, that, that is not the mm. kind of thing one completes like a diploma program, but is actually, um, but is actually something that we never grow out of. I mean, it's something that we, we continue right. needing um, formation so long as we sojourn in this earthly life. And I wonder, it just has me wondering if part of the disconnect that we sometimes run up against um, when we talk about catechesis is that for one reason or another, and we could speculate as to the reasons, um, we as moderns no longer see ourselves um, as the kinds of people who need that sort of thing, or at least hmm. as the kinds of um, creatures who need so robust um, you know, a curriculum of rehabilitation or reorientation <laughs> to reality. 
And um, anyway, so that's just an observation that I'm finding myself thinking about. I don't have any grand proposal or conclusion from that, but it just strikes me as an important part of this, this conversation. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the question of identity. I mean, do we, do we know that we are members of a royal priesthood and a holy mm. nation? That, that that is who and what we are. And in a sense, catechesis is is a kind of an aid to repentance. Right? <laughs> uh, St. Paul says, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's essentially mm. what we're up to. Um, so another one of my many sayings is uh, one hour a week is not enough, mm. Mm. right? Uh, that the entire culture, and especially now through these various organs of, te of technology, is constantly trying to catechize us into its image. Um, how are we to resist that formative, incredibly powerful formative uh, force? <laughs> it is a force. It is a power of our age. How, how are we going to help people resist that? And seems to me that catechesis is a mm. principal tool for that. Yeah, I like that. I thought thinking about the gospel and, and of, of Christian identity as a kind of counter catechesis or sort right. of resistance. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. you say somewhere, Joel, uh, I think you're quoting J.I. Packer um, about, you say something about, um, you know, you don't, you don't move on from the gospel, but you move forward within the gospel. And, and, and it's, it's not something... There's, there, there's a place right at the beginning of the small catechism where Luther says, I've got all these degrees and I'm this learned doctor, but I always, I never, I've never gra graduate from the small catechism. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's good. Well, thank you for joining us for this. And there's so much that we could talk about and uh, sort of um, pursue some of these trails and, and, and it's so important, but um, uh, Joel, thanks for, um, uh, engaging us in, in conversation and, and giving us lots to chew on. Well, I'm honored and it's been a joy. So you'll just have to have me back at some point. That I hope we do. <laughs> and we also hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Cardigan and Collar. If you, if you have enjoyed it, please consider liking and subscribing to help us spread the word to a broader audience. Um, before we leave you, uh, and on the topic of catechesis and education, uh, David, maybe do you want to give us a little taste of what's planned at the NELS for next summer? Yeah, I, I wanted to say just a little bit um, about the June interterm class we're offering uh, this coming summer. Uh, this will be on uh, from June 10th to June 14th. And the title of the class, some of, I'm sure many of our listeners will know that each summer at the NELS, we offer a class, um, a one-week class course intensive, which is meant to focus on uh, one of the NALC core values. And this year, we're focusing on the core value that we are a church that is mission-driven. And so the title of the class is Word and Sacrament Mission in a Post-Christian World. And we're trying to think about what it looks like to um, inculcate a culture of mission uh, within the life of our churches. And specifically, we're asking the question, how do we how, how, do, how can churches reach out intentionally uh, to a culture that's changing, but to do so in a way that reflects and honors um, the centrality of word and sacrament ministry? 
Uh, we have a wonderful guest teacher by the name of um, Dr. Dan Alger, who is a he has a lot of expertise, especially in the domain of church planting, but he's written a book on word and sacrament mission. And so we're very eager to have him and the class will be facilitated by pastor mentors from the North American Lutheran Church. So this is sort of a save the date kind of announcement. If you're interested in that, if that sounds like the kind of class uh, you might be interested in, uh, stay tuned and maybe hold the date. Again, it's June 10th through June 14th. There will be, I'm guessing, more information on the NELS website, thenels.org. And so you can keep watching for that. Again, Joel, thank you for joining us. What a great time. And for our listeners, join us next time as we continue discussing catechesis on Cardigan and Collar. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Cardigan and Collar is a podcast of the North American Lutheran Seminary, which exists to form pastors and leaders for the North American Lutheran Church. Cardigan and Collar is hosted by Dr. David Louie and the Reverend Dr. Maurice Lee. Our producer is Stephen Neaton, and our theme music was performed and recorded by Mary Van Hooser. For more information about the North American Lutheran Seminary, visit www.thenals.org.